Thank you. Um, so this is joint work with uh, Francesca Fazzani, who was a PhD student at UCL in the Sound Barcelona, and Steve Machin, who is at UCL and also at the centre with me at the LSE. Um, so we're going to look at the relationship between crime and immigration in the UK. Um, I'm going to talk about motivation, if you needed the motivation, why you're interested in the relationship between crime and immigration. Um, very briefly look at the literature, which is remarkably small, at least in economics. Um, and then I'll talk about the immigrants that we're going to look at um, and why we're going to look at the particular immigrants that we do. And then we'll do some uh, regressions. And then we'll look at some other data that kind of is ancillary in some sense to what we're doing, but supports our main conclusions. And then we'll interpret our results. Um, so the motivation is pretty straightforward. It's that uh, when economists spend, not surprisingly, economists spend all their time worrying about the labour market impact of immigration. That's kind of natural focus. And there's been an enormous literature that looks at uh, the impact of immigration on wages. And um, I describe that as a great, great effort to estimate zero more precisely, because the size is almost always zero. Um, so it's almost always impossible, almost everywhere, to find an effect of immigration on the wages of natives. Um, in spite of, you know, wherever you look, how big the flows seem to be, the labour market seems to adjust. Um, so that kind of um, is quite startling because opinion polls and politicians seem very concerned about immigration. Um, and you'd think that the major concern of immigration would be about economics. You'd think if, you know, if natives were getting wage cuts or couldn't get jobs, that that would be why natives seem to be very unhappy about immigration. Um, but that doesn't seem to, we can't find any evidence that that's true. So perhaps it's other things that uh, natives and politicians are concerned about when we talk about immigration. So this is from The Economist, um, which was just, um, I'm not racist, but so this was just an opinion poll that was done in 2009 across a variety of countries that just asked people what they thought about immigrants. Um, so although economists are perfectly happy with the view that uh, immigrants don't have any ne negative effect on natives' labour market outcomes, uh, in the UK, 50% of people actually believe there is a bad effect. So, I mean, either the economists are all wrong or the 50% of British people are all wrong. Um, and actually, Britain's the most extreme in that case, in terms of thinking that economics is a bad outcome. Um, but what's startling is that crime is also uh, pretty much the same sort of order of magnitude in terms of concerns. Um, so, heading towards 40% of British people think that legal migrants cause crime. Uh, in the Netherlands, it's heading towards 60%. Um, and actually, notice that this is legal migrants um, increased crime. If instead you look at the opinion poll numbers for illegal immigrants, the numbers go up to like 60-70%. Um, and oddly, just to show how badly informed people are, the majority of people in Britain think that most immigrants are illegal in this country, which, you know, given that we're an island, is somewhat a surprising conclusion. Um, so it's clear that it's not just um, economics that matters. Crime seems to matter. The uh, bottom uh, left-hand corner is um, people in Britain are convinced that, um, you know, by and large, benefit claimants are all immigrants, and you know, it's all kind of, you know, all of a picture of that. Uh, natives think there are lots of things wrong with immigrants, not just uh, economics. So we're going to look at the crime issue because um, that seems to be quite an important one in terms of uh, most countries. Now, I'm going to hold up my hands here first of all and say we're not going to talk about the literature of the links between crime and immigration. I'm going to talk about the economics literature of the link between crime and immigration. And there's probably lots of papers in sociology and political science that look at this. And I'm very grateful for any references on those because this is just about the economics of uh, crime and immigration that we've looked at. Um, so most of the work is done in the US, not surprisingly, um, and tends to look at essentially the rates of incarceration. Um, comparing natives and immigrants. So very simple stuff where you just work out what percentage of uh, immigrants are in prison, what percentage of natives are in prison. You just compare the two and you decide whether one is more criminal than the other. Um, most of the evidence in the US finds that um, immigrants are less likely to be in prison than natives, uh, but that as they spend longer in the US, they converge to bad US outcomes. So. Um, in some sense, this is the converse of what you find when you look at wages, which is that immigrants tend to start off quite badly in terms of wages, but then approach native levels over time. For crime, immigrants start off being better behaved than natives, and then end up being as bad as natives in the US. Um, so cross-section evidence for US cities where these authors have just taken um, the amount of immigrants in each city and correlated with the amount of crime in each city didn't find much effect. Um, not sure that really tells you very much. 
Uh, and then the most similar paper, so the stuff that we're going to do today is a paper that's been done on, uh, in, on Italian data. And uh, I won't talk about that just because it's quite similar to what we do. Um, and then the final thing is that um, you might be interested in um, crime against immigrants. So if you find any relationship, when, when people talk about the relationship between crime and immigration, I guess they're primarily thinking about do immigrants cross crime in some way. Um, but obviously it could be the reverse. It could be do immigrants suffer more um, in a criminal sense. And there's some evidence for Germany, this was, that uh, immigrants are more likely to suffer violent crime against them. Um, and we will have something to say towards the end on whether immigrants in the UK seem to be more victims of crime than natives. Okay, so who are the immigrants that we're going to look at? So we look at two groups of immigrants in the UK. Um, why are we going to, so the two flows that we're going to look at are the asylum seekers uh, that came roughly, you can think of that, between about 1996-1997 and about 2003-2004 was the big flow of asylum seekers into the UK. And then the second group of uh, immigrants we're going to look at are the um, EU accession countries uh, in 2004, so I'm going to call them the A8, eight, eight accession countries, uh, who were given access to the UK labour market and were allowed to freely enter from April 2004 onwards. Okay, so the question is why would we look at just these two flows? Well, one is that they dominate the time series over this period. So if you disaggregate immigrant flows by kind of who the, who the immigrants are, the two big groups are these two groups, particularly the second group. The second group are enormous. Um, we're talking of a flow of around about a million over the course of about four or five years. Um, so they're large, they're reasonably exogenous, um, which, by which I mean just that they came for um, very specific kind of reasons that were unrelated in many ways to what was going on in the UK and arguably very unrelated to what was going on about crime in the UK, which is obviously what you want. You want a flow of immigrants coming that isn't coming because of a crime issue because then this will confuse your analysis. Clearly the asylum seekers weren't coming because of uh, any particular issue about Britain, it was because of what was happening in their own countries and the A8 people were coming primarily because suddenly on one particular day, they were suddenly allowed to get jobs in the UK that they weren't allowed to get beforehand. Um, so that's the first we're going to look at. The other reason we look at the last decade is that we can only get out data on crime from 1999. We need disaggregated data on crime. And before 1999, uh, the only data on crime you could get in the UK was at what's called the police force area level. So big police forces, there's 42 of them in England and Wales. Uh, and we wanted more disaggregated data than that, so we can only get out from 1999. And finally, the reason we look at these two ways is that they're very different, both motivationally, in terms of why they came to the UK, and in terms of their characteristics. Um, so we'll come later to look at some numbers, but unsurprisingly, um, the asylum seekers tended to be lower educated from poorer backgrounds, um, and with more family commitments, they brought their families with them. Um, the A8 wave um, really are the kind of, the image that you have of the A8 people who came to the UK in, the, um, in 2004 onwards. They're young, they're heavily, uh, they're heavily committed to work, they tend to be reasonably educated, uh, and they tend not to have families. So it's the kind of, you know, the image of, you know, the Polish person who works for Ryanair or the Latvian who works in your local pub. That really is the kind of, the group that we're talking about in that second uh, wave. Okay, so just some numbers just to show, um, it's not very well printed here, but, uh, so the green line are, are the stock of foreign-born immigrants um, and you can see that uh, essentially the last decade, the 2000s, was the decade of enormous growth in that number. So we started the decade at about 4 million uh, foreign-born people in the UK, and we ended at nearly 7 million. Um, so, um, so just to bear in mind that this was a very special period, uh, the, the last decade was the only decade, in, in, I think, in history where the, number of, the net migration number was bigger than the natural change caused by births and deaths. Okay. So it was a very unique period in uh, immigration history in the UK. Uh, in terms of crime, you'll see that crime peaked uh, in about, the bars show you crime. Crime peaked in about 2002, 2003, uh, and then began to fall reasonably rapidly, actually. Um, and violent crime peaked a couple of years later and has slowly cut, so slowly tailed off, but not as much as uh, property crime. So crime's coming down, and again, these are recorded crime numbers. If you ask people whether crime's going up or down, they're all convinced crime's going up all the time. Uh, crime's actually been falling on recorded figures from about 2003. 
Okay, so the first wave with the asylum seekers, uh, mainly as I say, came between 97 and 2002, and unsurprisingly from fairly war-torn countries, top five source countries, Serbia, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Sri Lanka. Uh, and we had 385,000 applications over the period. So over that five-year period, 385,000 people applied for asylum. Now, there's some question about how many stayed, um, and I'll, I, I should say that what we don't know is we don't have data on people who in the end stay. So we can't observe in any data in the UK whether you applied as an asylum seeker and eventually stayed. What we have data on is whether you were an asylum seeker. So we only observe you while you're seeking asylum. Uh, now that can take a long time. Um, in this period, the Home Office completely lost control of the uh, management of this system. Um, and it was taking up to two years to process asylum claims. And particularly because you know, you're obviously allowed to keep on appealing if you are denied, uh, are denied uh, leave to stay. Um, so of those 385,000 applications, we think about 70% in the end were refused. Okay, um, but we don't know how many actually left. So um, for the purposes of this talk and the work we're going to look at, we're only interested in people who are seeking asylum, not people who in the end are immigrants in the UK but are asylum, came through the asylum route, because we don't observe those people. Um, and the asylum seeker numbers fell off very dramatically after 2002. Um, this was true of most countries. There was just a global slowdown. Uh, as these countries, well, I was going to say these countries stabilised. I'm not quite sure that Iraq stabilised up to 2003. Um, but most of these, the, the numbers fell off quite heavily um, all around the world. And of course, there were increasingly tough asylum laws in the UK to try and discourage uh, asylum seekers coming to this country. Um, over this period, we were the second highest country in the world in terms of asylum applicants. Uh, only Germany had more asylum seekers than the UK did. Okay, and then the second wave, as I've said, were the A8 workers. Uh, the flows dominated by Poland, 70% of them are Poles. And I say the size of the flows was associated with it was somewhat underestimated. There's a famous um, survey, there's a famous report that was written for the uh, Home Office just before the as this asylum wave began. It's written by an esteemed academic colleague of mine um, who um, predicted that uh, the flows would, would sum to about 13,000 a year. And as I say, it was about a quarter of a million per year. Um, so there was somewhat of an underestimate of how big these flows were going to be. Um, and there are the flows. So um, the, red the red bars are the total inflow of all immigrants. So this is, uh, this is not net migration, this is just inflows. Uh, the asylum applicants, you can see, uh, rising up to about 2002 and then falling off quite heavily by the end. And then the A8 asylum seekers, uh, so A8 uh, workers start coming in and then tail off a bit uh, here. And actually, if you carried on this chart, they'd tail off even more into 2009 as the recession really hit. Uh, but now they're bouncing back again. Okay. So here are some, just some summary statistics on the two groups that we're looking at. These are the asylum seekers. So I guess you want to compare the first column of the, of the British natives and the last column of the asylum seekers. And I guess the things to note really are that they're much more likely to have children. 53% of them have children compared to 40% of Brits. Uh, they're much more likely to have no qualifications. Over half of them have no qualifications. Um, and then their kind of wages, if they manage to get a job, are much lower than British wages. So they're, they're basically their skill set in terms of the UK labour market is very low. Uh, they're much more likely to be unemployed, much less likely to participate in the labour market. And if they do participate, they like to get very poor wages. Okay. So these are, this group of workers are significantly disadvantaged in the labour market relative to British natives. And also, the middle column is non-asylum foreigners. And, okay. This is the A8 wave by contrast, so uh, again, comparing the first and the last column. Uh, and here you find that they're much younger, so average age of the, uh, the A8 group was 29 years old. Uh, then heavily white, they're not likely to be married. Um, and now, that, now I'm just saying, they're less, much less likely to have a degree notice. And um, one reason for that is that lots of them are very young and they haven't finished their studies yet. They actually have more years of schooling than British people, but they have fewer degrees. And the reason is that lots of the people who come over are students. So they'll come over either for a summer or actually they'll take a year out, come and do a job for a year and then go back and finish their studies. So they're actually quite highly educated, this AA group. Um, they're much more likely to participate in the labour market. Um, 
but they don't earn as much uh, when they do. Um, so although they're actually quite skilled, quite a lot of them, and they're, they're quite sort of good, in, good employees, they've come to the UK by and large and taken fairly low-paid jobs. Um, now, this wasn't a surprise to them. When they came to the country, in the first, the first day they come to the country, they have to register. And they were asked what they expected their wage to be. And they all expected it to be of the order of eight or nine pounds an hour. So this wasn't a surprise to them. Uh, obviously, from their perspective, what matters is how much that buys you in Zloty that they then can take home when they return to their country. So, um, so they don't do well when they get a job, but they all do get a job. Okay, okay so they're the two uh, ways that we're going to look at. And so this is the model that we're going to estimate. So we're just going to estimate, so this is going to be across um, local authorities in the UK, so in England and Wales, sorry. So we have 400 and, 400 and something local authorities. And all we're going to do is we're going to look at the change in the crime rate in each local authority and relate it to the change in the migrant population. Okay? Um, and because this is a difference equation, so we're looking at the differences in the, ch the changes over time, we're obviously controlling for unobservable characteristics of the area. Okay? So just because one area has more crime than another will be completely irrelevant to this analysis. We're only going to be identifying the effect of migrants from changes in crime related to changes in migration. So that's going to be quite important. Um, because obviously if you just did a levels regression, if you just looked at the relationship between crime levels and migrant levels, you're not controlling for the unobserved characteristics of the area. And the unobserved characteristics would bias any coefficient you estimated. So that's the model we're going to estimate. It's fairly standard panel regression. Um, and you might think that this is all a bit odd, uh, looking at these two different groups, because you could just look at all migrants. Okay, so in some sense, we've, we've jumped almost ahead of where you'd start to think of it. If you wanted to start thinking of this question, surely the first thing to do is just to look at all, you know, all immigrants as a group and relate their, the stock of all immigrants in a group to crime in an area and see whether there's an average effect for all immigrants. And then if there is an average effect for all immigrants, you could then decompose it into what type of immigrants kind of matters. Um, well, you could think of, so we do that, and uh, we're going to tell you why you shouldn't do that, but you can do that, um, and so we do that. So we do exactly that previous regression, but instead of looking at the different waves, we just look at all immigrants in a region, or yeah, in a local authority. Okay. And we can do that because from uh, the Labour Force survey, we can identify 170 areas. They're not quite local authorities. They're big local authorities, and then some of the smaller local authorities are added together just to make uh, sample sizes. Uh, so we can get 170 of them. So you could just estimate the regression that I had um, on all immigrants. So that's what we do here. Um, and I'm not going to talk in this part about the IV regression. I'm just going to talk about the, the, the OLS regression. And this thing is the immigrant population. This is the variable we're interested in. Okay. And the numbers are precisely zero, well, almost precisely zero. Okay. So this is a regression of trying to explain crime in an area by the amount of immigrants in the area. And every coefficient on the top line, the first three coefficients, whether, whether you look at crime in total or you split up into violence or property crime, uh, you get no effect. Okay. So that, I mean, you might want to stop there, because you might say, well, there you are. There's no relationship between immigrants and crime, so uh, that's fine. Um, so there's a problem here, and this is why we've done what, why we've looked at the waves that we're going to look at. And let me just, um, so ignore the first part. I'll come to that later. This is the, the bit that uh, is a problem. And the problem is that the data on immigrants... So obviously, how do you get data on immigrants, I guess, is the question. Well, every 10 years, we get a very good number, because we get the census. So the census every 10 years gives us a very accurate one. Not very accurate, but it gives us a number that is supposedly a 100% sample of all immigrants and all natives, and it's very disaggregated. You can get it down to you know, the street level if you uh, have the right access. Uh, but of course, that wouldn't help us here, because we haven't got, the last census was in 2001, and be, given the ONS, it'll be a few years before we get the 2011 number. So you can't say anything about the crime numbers that we're talking about here because you haven't got a census since 2001. So you need to find some other data for uh, migrants. And what, if you remember what I've done here is I've used the Labour Force Survey. Okay? The Labour Force Survey is the biggest survey in the UK that's done, uh, annual, uh, it's done it quarterly. Uh, and it's, it's done mainly to produce the uh, statistics on uh, unemployment uh, for the UK. Uh, the problem is that it's still not very big. So it samples one quarter of 1% of the population. Okay. Well, if it's quarter, sampling one quarter of 1% of the population, work out how many migrants it's sampling every, in, uh, every time. 
and then you disaggregate into 170 areas in Britain, what you end up getting is absolutely tiny cells. Okay? So you're trying to measure immigrants every year in each local authority, but because the sample size is too small, you get less than, in most cells you get less than 100 immigrants per cell. Okay? So you get very small uh, data points, and then what we're interested in is the change from one year to the next. We're not interested in how many immigrants there are in one year, we're interested in how it changes. So, you know, just by sampling variability, essentially, you get lots of noise. Okay? And this is a big problem in this literature uh, that people are beginning to realize, that actually, if you use survey data to try and do this kind of analysis, you're likely to get the wrong answers. And so, we've done, you know, not enormous worry about what we've done here, but we did a simulation where we said, let's pretend we really knew that there was a strong relationship between immigrants and crime. So we just pretended there was a strong relationship. And we said, suppose that we created data that made that true. So we did a simulation where we created data that made that relationship true. And then we sampled from that data in the same way that the government would sample when they do their labor force survey. Okay. And what we found was that you'd never get a positive relationship. Or indeed, in this, you'd never get the size of the relationship that we claimed we knew was true. Okay. So this sampling error generates essentially a number of zero. Okay. So that table that you saw earlier, the main reason you're getting zeros is because of this sampling problem. And this is a problem essentially with probably quite a lot of the previous literature on immigration and anything else in economics, is that they've used this kind of data and it probably doesn't get you the answers you want. So this is why we're not going to proceed on that route because it's, the survey data is never going to work. Okay. And that's why we focused on these two waves and we focus on these two waves because we don't need sample data. Okay, so for these two waves and only these two waves, we happen to have administrative data that exactly, match, exactly measures what we want to measure. Okay? So what we want to measure is how many migrants there are every year in each local authority. And it turns out we can do that for these two waves. Uh, and the reason we can do that is, is well, let me take them in turn. Asylum seekers, um, when they came to the UK, they had to obviously register with the Home Office uh, and the Home Office had a computer system that told you where they lived, okay, essentially. So we always know which local authority each asylum seeker lived in. So that was good for asylum seekers. We know the full population of them and where, where they were located. For the A8 workers who came, although they were freely allowed to enter and work in the UK, um, they had to register on what was called the worker registration scheme. Um, so it was a very simple procedure. As soon as you came into the country, you simply registered on this thing called the worker registration scheme and you said where your new job was that you'd come to the UK to take and where, where you were going to live. Okay? And everyone registered. There was almost 100% compliance with the rules. Um, and therefore, we know exactly for these groups. We know exactly how many people are in each local authority each year. Okay? So the, the, the crucial thing here is that we're not using survey data. We're using administrative total sample data. Okay? So we know exactly the right variables. And then we're just going to match that with crime. Uh, at the local authority level from uh, the police force. And here are our regressions now. So it's the same sort of regression, but now we're going to look at uh, the two different waves. So the first row are the asylum numbers, and the second row are the um, ADA waves. And then there's some controls that are included here. Okay. So um, I think it's most useful to split this up into violent and property crime. We think there are different reasons for why people commit property crime and violent crime. So, for violent crime, if anything, the coefficients are negative for both the asylum and the AA wave, depending on what you control for. So, at the margin, if anything, you'd say that having more asylum seekers or having more um, A8 uh, workers in your area reduced the amount of violent crime that went on in your area. Okay? At the margin, it's, they're not significant, so you, know, you can't reject the hypothesis that they're actually zero. But if anything, they're slightly negative. Yeah, for, for those of you that are not familiar with this, that star next to the coefficient means that it is significant. Yeah. Statistically significant. Yes. So anything with a star is statistically significant. So the fact that these are having stars means that they're not, you can't be certain that it's not really zero. Okay. For property crime, you find something different. Um, you find that the, the coefficient is positive for the asylum seekers. So that having more asylum seekers in your area seems to increase property crime in your area. But again, not quite significant, although quite close. They're not significant, but they're on the borderline. Um, whereas for the A8, if anything, you find negative effect okay, and, positive, and significantly negative in the final uh, thing. So there doesn't seem to be much difference in violent crime, but in property crime, there's a big difference here. 
Uh, we seem to find that asylum seekers uh, in an area tend to increase uh, property crime, whereas AA workers seem to decrease property crime in the area. So, in some sense, that's going to be kind of the big story here, that that's, um, that's the, the key result that we have. And what, what we're going to do now is very quickly talk about kind of what the problem with, that, with this model is um, and why you've got to be careful about that conclusion. Okay. So, the worry that you have is the following, and this is going to be a worry for both for the asylum and the AA wave, is that Suppose I come to the UK and um, I um, choose an. I come to the UK as a either an asylum seeker or as um, a, an AA worker. I can choose where to work, so I can choose where to go and live. Okay. So there's a risk here that what happens is I go and choose to live in an area that I think is going to have good crime going forward. Okay. So rationally, you'd sort of look around and you'd say, "Oh, that area looks like it's got good trends in terms of crime. Looks like crime's going to go down in that area." That's probably where I want to live, because that's a nice area. Okay? Well, obviously, if, a, if lots of immigrants go to that area, because they're choosing where to go and live when they come to the country, then you'll find, a you'll find the correlation that more immigrants reduce crime. Okay? But it's not because these immigrants are actually reducing crime. It's because they're choosing to go to areas that they know are going to have low crime. Okay? Now, you're making a big assumption here that immigrants know that sort of information. Okay. Now, you could argue, well, if immigrants know it, surely the natives would know it as well, and they'd also flow to these areas. Uh, but perhaps they're more restricted because they've already got a job and they can't choose where to go and move, whereas immigrants are coming fresh, so they're choosing where to go and live. So there's a bit of a worry here that if you can't, what you want to do, how would you want to do this? In a perfect world, you'd want to take all immigrants that come into the country and you'd want to randomly allocate them to different local authorities. Okay? And then you'd look at the relationship between crime and immigration, and you'd be absolutely certain that it was a true causal effect. Okay? Because there'd be no choice by the immigrant. They'd just be put there, you're going to live there, and you know. So that's what you want to get. You want to somehow get a random experiment where you just shove immigrants into different areas, and then you see what the effect on crime is. That's kind of the ideal. Well, for asylum seekers, we got quite close. Okay? And we got quite close because of a change in the rules in 2000. In 2000, the government changed how asylum seekers were um, supported while they stayed in the while their asylum application was being considered. Before 2000, basically, asylum seekers chose where to go and live, and then they applied for money to help them live. Okay. In 2000, the government said, "Yeah, that's not that's not really working for us. What we're going to do now is you apply to us when you arrive and say you want you need support, you need housing, you need benefits, that kind of thing, and we'll tell you where you're going to go and live." Okay. And the way that the system operated was that um, the government essentially asked local authorities if they were willing to provide accommodation, either in the private sector or in the public sector. And lo those local authorities that were willing to provide accommodation were on the list that was selected as potential places for these asylum seekers to go. Okay. And the crucial, two, th two crucial things. First of all, there was no accommodation in London. So London was explicitly, by law, excluded from this procedure. So if you came to the UK and you needed help in accommodation, you were never going to be put into London. Okay? And the second thing is that asylum seekers had no choice over where they went. So this administrative system might have said, well, we've got a place in Blackpool, we've got a place in Glasgow, we've got a place in the Cotswolds. And the asylum seeker would presumably have said, oh, I like Cotswolds. Um, it turns out the asylum seeker had no right to choose. Okay? In fact, again, in the legislation it was made explicit that there was no consideration to be made of where the asylum seeker wanted to go. Okay. So they by and large got sent to Glasgow. And uh, I mean, I think there's a chart. Yes, here's a chart of where they got sent. Um, so there are whole swathes of the country, uh, which seem to me to be somewhat correlated with whether they're conservative voting or not. But there's whole swathes of the country where no one got sent. So southeast by and large, all of the southwest, pretty much most of Wales, most of this East Anglia um, didn't get any immigrants at all. Uh, didn't get any asylum seekers, sorry. Um, and they were heavily so focused in the northeast conurbations. Um, I guess this is Manchester around there, Birmingham. And you'll notice London's there. And the reason London's there is that this is the distribution before, actually, this is the distribution uh, because people who didn't need help could choose where to go. So the only people who needed to, who were forced to go where the government sent them, were those who needed help. Okay. About 
75 to 80% needed help. So those were sent away. The remaining 25% of asylum seekers essentially had some other form of support, which presumably was family. And unsurprisingly, most of them went to London. Okay. Okay. So this is just to give you a sense as to what these areas were like. Um, don't need to go through them all. I mean, the basic, there are two things that are important. One is that, unsurprisingly, what's called the dispersal areas, the areas where these asylum seekers were sent, <laughs> tended to be much worse environments. Okay? Much higher unemployment rates, um, higher, claimant, higher benefit claimant rates, um, already had lots of immigrants in the area, um, and had um, more people without qualifications. So all of these things are statistically significant, the difference between the areas that were and were not used. Um, but the thing that really matters from our perspective is that what was happening to crime in the run-up to these areas being chosen? So remember, 2000 was the cut-off point for when they chose areas that could be dispersed to. Um, in the run-up to that, in the two years prior to those choices, there's no difference at all between crime rates. Okay? So areas were not being chosen on the basis that they were experiencing good or bad crime outcomes relative to other areas. Okay? So that's quite important from our perspective, because it would be a problem if they were being sent to areas that had lots of really bad crime trends, and there's no evidence they were. Okay. Um, so, so that's the um, asylum situation. The, um, the, the A8 wave, you can't do as, again, so again, you'd like to do the same thing with the A8 wave to make the same sort of uh, thought experiment of randomly putting them places. Uh, you obviously can't do that for these, because they really were allowed to live wherever they wanted. Okay, there was no restriction on. They could get a job wherever they wanted. Um, what we're going to do for these groups of workers is we're going to um, use a trick that's used in the economics literature quite a lot, which is that we're going to argue that one of the reasons that people choose where to live, immigrants, when they come to the country, is where people from the same country already live. Okay? So, there's strong, so you can think of this as just clustering within areas. But there's a strong correlation between um, the... I don't know, the Bangladeshi community in um, Yorkshire and whether Bangladeshis choose to move to Yorkshire or not. Okay? So they're much more likely to move to Yorkshire than they are to move to Cambridgeshire. And the argument is that that's where their network, there's a support network there for them. Okay? And it turns out that if you use the 2001 census and look at how many East Europeans there were in each local authority in Britain, there's quite a strong correlation, surprisingly, between the percentages in each of those local authorities and where this new flow of Eastern Europeans went. Okay? And it's strong enough to use as, um, in economics, what we call an instrument to control for this. Um, so we're going to use the fact that although Polish people, when they came to the UK, chose lots of different places to go, they were somewhat more likely to go to places where there was already an established Polish community. Okay? And that's going to help us here. But as you can see, they went much more diverse uh, than the, the asylum seekers. They really did cover pretty much all the country um, in terms of their distribution. So they're much more evenly spread, the A8 wave. So without going into the econometrics of what I'm doing here, I'm going to use those, that kind of that trick to try and estimate what is the true causal relationship between immigrants and crime. And what you find, and the, the two big numbers here are this number and this number, is that for property crime, when you do this kind of trick, the asylum effect is much stronger, is bigger, and much more significant. Okay? So if anything, when you control for this effect, you find that it's more likely than it was in the previous regressions that being in an area with more asylum seekers generates increases in property crime. Okay? So this number is double the size it was previously, and is statistically significant. For the A8 wave, you find the exact reverse. It now becomes more negative and more statistically significant. So for the A8 wave, we actually find a very strong effect that you're much, you're much better off, basically, if you're worried about property crime, you're much better off having lots of A8 people in your area. Okay. Uh, and the reverse is true for asylum seekers. So there's a big difference between these two waves in terms of their effect. Uh, and you know, very stark, uh, violent crime, nothing at all, really. Brian, can you yeah. talk about the meaning of the coefficient? Yes, in this slide oh, here. Okay. <laughs> How big is the effect? So you know, they're just no, their coefficients on a regression how do we interpret this? Well, um, I'll just jump straight to what the number is. So, um, so the average size of the asylum seekers in any one local authority was only 0.1% of the population. Okay? So obviously these were a small group of people in terms of, in terms of the UK population. So only a tenth of 1% of the local authority on average were asylum seekers. 
Um, well, our estimate would imply that property crime would therefore be 0.09% higher. Or to put it another way, there'd be a 3% increase in the average property crime rate. Okay? So that's not a big effect. That's kind of, you know, at the margin, that's kind of, you know, you'd notice it, but for the average property crime rate, it would go up by about 3% in the local authority. So not big. Um, however, I should say that some local authorities, because of this dispersal policy, some local authorities got a lot more than that. Okay? So some local authorities got as high as 1% of their population being asylum applicants. And obviously, therefore, you can get a much bigger effect in some local authorities. So for, the, for, both, for that effect, I think the conclusion that we'd reach is, at a national level, this was a small effect. It was, it was bad, kind of, you know, property crime went up a bit because of this, but it wasn't an enormous effect. But there were probably some local areas that suffered quite badly because they took in lots of asylum seekers through this procedure and hadn't thought about the potential crime effect. Okay. If you do similar calculations for the AAs, uh, you get a reduction in property crime of about 6% of the average crime rate. So a slightly bigger effect than for asylum seekers just because there's more of them. Okay. So obviously many more AA workers came than asylum seekers, um, so therefore you get a slightly bigger effect on property crime. So this is just, yeah, again, it's at the margin, kind of, you know, we're not going to explain big crime trends here by these numbers, um, but it's worth having a reduction of 6% in your property crime rate in the area just by having some AA workers come and live there. Okay. So, yeah, so the crucial thing here is the, the effects are not big in the sense of explaining massive trends in national numbers, but they potentially are big in some local authorities that had very concentrated figures. Now, just to finish off, I want to talk about just some other data that we've collected, just to see whether kind of other data looks like that data. Because the one problem we've got obviously here is that we're, we're inferring the relationship between crime and immigration by looking at the number of migrants in an area and looking at the crime rate in an area and correlating the two. And that sort of makes sense, that's what economists would do. You might think, well, that's a pretty silly way of doing it. More obvious is just to go and ask how many, take a sample of immigrants, take a sample of natives, ask them how many committed a crime and ask them how many, you know, and then work out the percentage. Okay? So that would be one way of doing it. So, you know, the problem is that by and large people don't respond truthfully to a question like, have you committed a crime? Uh, so that doesn't work. Uh, the alternative is to go and ask the police how many people they've arrested. Okay? So, um, from about 2004, um, the police started recording the nationality of people they arrested. Some, some police forces did. Um, so you can get that data because the Freedom of Information Act allows you for free to make the police do some work for you. So we asked every police force in the country to tell us those numbers. Okay, so we, we got arrest, rate, arrest numbers per year by nationality. And we got them for about, about sort of, I think it was about 30 of the 40 uh, police forces. Uh, you can't do it for the asylum seeker way because they didn't really collect this data until about 2004. So we can't do it for the asylum way. But we can do it for the, um, the AA way. So we just looked at, in each police force area, we just looked at how many arrests they'd made of um, East Europeans, and we divided by the population of East Europeans in that local authority, in that police force area, and we compared that rate to what natives were being arrested, the rate that natives were being arrested. Okay? And a number of one would imply that they're being arrested in exactly the same proportion as natives. Okay? And all of these numbers, um, although I haven't actually, well, all you need to know about these numbers is they're all insignificantly different from one. Okay. They're all slightly higher than one, but they're all insignificantly different from one. So you can't reject the idea that Polish people, East Europeans in general, were being arrested at about the same rate as natives. Now remember we found that they're actually slightly less likely to commit crime, we think. Um, so you might have expected a slightly less than one number, which would have been consistent with that. We get a number of one. Um, there are two explanations for that. One is that it's actually the effect is about zero rather than negative as we think. That's certainly possible. It could be that they're just like natives rather than a bit better than natives. One, one argument. Second argument is that, again, remember this is police arrest rates. Okay? So if the police decide to arrest, if the police see a crime and decide it's more likely that an East European has committed the crime than a native just because they think that, then they'll arrest more East Europeans on average. Okay? So remember, arrests are not the same as people actually guilty of crime. Uh, and so it could just be some form of discrimination by the police that's going on here, that they over-arrest immigrants relative to natives. Can't, can't really tell which which. which. Okay. So the final piece of evidence that we're going to look at in terms of crime is incarceration rates. Um, 
you can do, um, again, you can't do quite what you want. What you want is you want the number of immigrants who are in prison. Um, you can't get that because they don't report immigration status uh, in prison statistics, but they do report the nationality. So you can work out the nationality of prisoners. Um, and so what we've all we've done here is we've just worked out what the, um, I'll just jump straight ahead to the chart, we've just worked out what the incarceration rate is of different uh, populations. Okay? And the this doesn't make any sense, but what this bottom line is the incarceration rate of natives. And the numbers, unfortunately, haven't printed properly here. But um, so this is just the uh, percentage of the natives that are in prison, and it's about I'm not sure what it is actually. It's about just under one percent, about half percent, one percent. Okay. The red line is um, all immigrants who are not from the asylum seeker countries. Okay. We can't identify asylum seekers here, so we're just going to assume that anyone who comes from one of the five countries that mainly contributed to asylum seekers, we're just going to call those asylum seeker countries. Okay? Not everyone is an asylum seeker in those countries. So for the non-asylum the non seeker immigrants, there was a slight trend upwards up until about 2005, I think it says, and then uh, telling off. And then the line at the top is the five countries that contributed asylum, that were the main source of asylum seekers in the UK. And the line down here is 1997, when the big wave began. And you do see some evidence that there was a higher incarceration rate for those groups of for people from those nationalities, which would be consistent with them committing more property crime. Okay, so if it's true that they commit more property crime, as we seem to suggest, you'd also expect, on average, them eventually to be in prison more, um, and you do get that effect. Um, problem is we can't link it to what sort of crime they're being arrested for, or they're being imprisoned for. Does that include immigration? It doesn't. It, does, it doesn't. So the one thing it definitely doesn't include, we make out that it doesn't include immigration offences. So that would be a real problem. Um, and it excludes immigration centres um, as well. Um, so, um, so they are being arrested for crime, but we don't know whether it's property crime, drug crime, violent crime. Um, and the only way you could get that data is if the Home Office actually let you dig into there. They've got the data, of course, because it's all on their computer, but they won't give us access to it. So this is consistent with the idea that this group of, uh, that the asylum seeker countries were more likely to commit crime, whether it was trending upwards um, as the flow increased. But, you know, it's no, it's no more than just supportive of what we've said. Um, for the AA group, um, you can compare natives, which are, again, the dotted line. And this is the AA countries. Um, and post-2004, post they seem to have exactly the same incarceration rate as Brits. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be much of a... They don't seem to do any worse than Brits, but they don't seem to do any better. Uh, the numbers before, you might be worried that this thing seems to be very aggressively moving up and then suddenly slumping. Uh, the problem is that before 2004, there just weren't many AA people in the country. So uh, the numbers that were actually in prison from that group were of the order of three or four people. So it doesn't really help you with uh, the chart because you know the, the, the numerator is so tiny. Um, but at least it's not it's not inconsistent with this story that there was no bad effect from the AA group. We think there was probably a positive effect, but at least certainly no bad effect. And there seems to have been some negative effect from asylum seekers. Okay, so the final bit of evidence that we wanted to look at was victimisation, because um, we we naturally worry that whichever correlation we get, whether it's negative or positive between immigrants and crime, it's that what you're picking up is an effect on immigrants of crime. So you'd worry that if you found a positive effect that immigrants cause more crime, it could just be that it's, yes, the, 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 there is a correlation, but it's that more immigrants lead to more crime because more crime is committed against immigrants. Okay? And that's what you're picking up. So we'd be worried about that. Um, and so we just looked at that. So fortunately, the, um, the British Crime Survey, um, since uh, in the last decade, uh, has fairly big sample sizes and uh, allows you to identify immigrants and asks questions about whether you suffered any crime. Okay? So we just look at the numbers. Did, the, did immigrants report more victimization than natives? Okay. And the answer is no. Um, these are um, both for the asylum groups and for the A8. All of these numbers are negative, and most of them are significant. And a negative number just means they're less likely to report being a victim of crime than a similar native. Okay. And we're controlling for lots of stuff here. This entire thing here tells you what we're controlling for. We're controlling for virtually everything you could think of that's in the uh, survey. Uh, and however we slice and dice this data, we find that immigrants are less likely to be subject to crime than natives. Okay. 
And we don't have any explanation for that at the moment. We don't, well, it's not really part of this paper in terms of trying to explain that. And we are starting to do some work on that because the one, one, one idea we had, which we want to look at, is it could just be that there's some enclave effect going on here. That immigrants, um, the reason that they experience less crime is that they choose to live in areas where they essentially are protected from crime because they're living within their own communities. Uh, and so that could be part of the effect that we're seeing here. Uh, sorry, Brian, yeah. This is self-reported crime. This right? is self-reported crime. Maybe they're just not reporting crime by something. It could be. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, yes. So it could be that they um, that they just don't say this is, that they're more scared of reporting crime, or they're less. You know, perhaps they don't think things are crimes that natives would think are crimes. Uh, although I think it's true, uh, we can check this, but I think it's also true that they think that uh, crime in their area is less than natives in their area think. So they do have some perception of crime being less than natives, not even if it's not against them themselves. Uh, so there's quite a few questions in the BSF, BCS about have you seen any crime being committed? And they also think that's quite low. So it's not just that there's something But yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, but however you look at this, it seems to be the case that um, you don't get this. You get the, a good effect for immigrants in terms of victimization. OK, so just to finish off, how do we interpret all that we've got here? So remember what the key result we've got is violent crime, we don't find any effects. For property crime, we find that asylum seekers seem to increase property crime in an area, and the AA waves seem to decrease it. And so we go back to um, Gary Becker's economic model of crime to try and understand that, because it's quite a um, pretty straightforward model. So just talking through it, you've got um, wages, wages from crime. Uh, and U is a utility function, so this is the benefit you get as an individual from committing crime, and P is the probability that you're caught. Okay. So if you're not caught, then you get all the benefits of crime. If you are caught, you get the disadvantages of being punished. Okay, so S is the sentence. So the left-hand side gives you the utility you get as an individual from committing crime, okay. adjusted for the fact that there's a probability you'll be caught, and then this side is the utility you get from working, from having a normal job. And so in Becker's model, it's always very simple in uh, anything uh, that Becker does when it's an economic model. It's always about just comparing the cost and benefits of these things. And you just work out which utility is higher, and then you decide whether to commit crime or not. Okay? So if people commit crime, if, if the utility they get from committing crime is bigger than the utility they get from working. Okay? And the key prediction of this model, in terms of what we're interested in, is that relative labor market opportunities matter. Okay? If you, basically, you don't find, I was going to say you don't find many bankers committing crime. Um, you don't find many bankers committing crime that is actually on the statute book and they're likely to be caught on. Uh, and the reason is that they can earn so much in the legal sector. Okay? Uh, you do find lots of people whose alternative career is you know, at the very, very low wages. They're the people who are more likely to commit crime at the margin. Okay? It's kind of just a standard um, prediction. And it's borne out pretty strongly in every bit of empirical evidence I've ever seen. Okay, so anywhere where you've looked at data on individuals and you've looked at kind of um, crime propensities relative to their economic opportunities, you always find strong effects. Okay. Um, it doesn't really work for violent crime. Um, you know, it's hard to think of what the economic model of uh, it's hard to think of an economic model of violent crime. Uh, so, you know, but we're not really interested in violent crime because we, we don't think there's much of a story there. So, so, so this yeah. story will tell you why AA migrants will not commit crime. But the key question is you find that they lower crime rates. So you have a story of why they are lower? Indeed, because they're more committed to the labour market than the British, British are. But don't we need to take into account here the fact that asylum seekers were not allowed to work? So although the rules changed over that period, they either weren't allowed to work for the first six months or the first 12 months. So we're not comparing like with like. So, so that, and if you don't mention that, no, no. you could get the wrong impression. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So in the paper, we do talk about that. Uh, so it's absolutely true. Um, so I'll, I'll answer both, both questions. So the answer to your question is that um, the reason that we find that they have a negative effect is that we would argue because they're more committed than natives. They're legal opportunity. They are more committed in terms of they have higher participation rates. They essentially they all of them come to the UK and the only thing they want to do is work. No, I That's sadly not true of natives. That, that is why um, they are maybe less inclined to commit crime than UK people. Indeed. But the thing is that they decrease crime in the area that they are. Yeah. That's just, well, that's just because as soon as you accept the first one, the second has to follow. Because you, they, they have to live somewhere, and wherever they happen to live, therefore, reduces the crime rate in that area. Just, there's just a composition effect of, you know, if you take one group of people who have less crime rate and natives who have a higher crime rate because they're less committed to the labour market, 
If you increase the proportion of the better people, you get a lower crime rate in the area. So that works. Um, in terms of the asylum seekers, absolutely true. Uh, so the rules, uh, which the rules used to be, they used to be that you couldn't work at 12 months. No, it used to be six months. And then it, it used to be six months, and then it was increased to 12 months. Six months, you weren't allowed to work. So it went down to not at all. It got, and, then and then it went back the up European again. The European Union went back up to a year. Yeah. So they, they, over this period, they did change the rules as to how, what you were. So basically, when you came to the UK and claimed asylum, you weren't allowed to work while your asylum claim was being assessed. But because the Home Office were incompetent in assessing these things, uh, there came a point at which if you were still being assessed, you were allowed to go and get work because it was just becoming ridiculous. Um, most of the people in our sample, we think, and we don't know because we can't observe this variable, we think most of the people in our sample who are asylum, we call asylum seekers would have been eligible to work in this, in, at this point because their, asylum, their claims have taken too long to assess. Uh, the other thing I would say is that even if they weren't um, allowed to work, uh, you could argue that that just makes this model even worse because their, um, their utility from the legal private sector was actually zero in terms of work. So if they're doing their cost-benefit analysis, their cost-benefit analysis is, I can get some benefit from crime. I can get no utility from working because I'm not allowed to. So the only utility I'm getting over here is the utility of uh, the benefits that I'm getting from the state while I'm not allowed to work. So that would increase, in some sense, their propensity to commit crime because they don't have any legal opportunities to work. So you know, now, of course, you, you then reply, well, but none of them would want to commit crime because you don't really want to commit a crime while your assessment is being made. Um, it's not clear to me what the right answer to that is. I mean, uh, it is true, obviously, that you wouldn't want to, while your assessment is being made by the Home Office. I agree it doesn't look good if you are charged with an offence. Uh, as far as I can see, though, it shouldn't affect, it shouldn't, I think, affect the decision of the Home Office whether to grant you asylum or not. Because it seems to me that the decision to grant asylum should be, is legally separate from that because they can't deny your claim if you satisfy the criteria of being fear of your life and the usual kind of requirements. And so uh, they can't, in fact, in some sense, you could argue that uh, people who commit crime who are asylum seekers and are eventually granted asylum are in a stronger position than other immigrants because other immigrants, when they're convicted, um, they're potentially subject to deportation at the end of their prison sentence. So the Home Secretary has the authority, and I think now has the obligation, in fact, to deport um, foreigners who commit crime, of course, we wouldn't be allowed to deport anyone that we granted asylum to, because just by definition, they're, they're exempt from that rule. So you know, it's not clear that the, the punishment is worse for asylum seekers. OK. So does immigration affect crime? So we, we tend to find, look, looking at these two waves, our, our basic conclusion is, yes, it does. Um, the asylum wave led to a small increase in property crime, and the AA wave had this reverse effect. But neither affect a large relative to overall crime rates. It's a crucial thing to note. We're not going to claim here in any sense that this enormous wave contributed to any massive trends in crime at the national level. Uh, there are no observable violent crime effects. Um, most of the other data we've got all paint a fairly consistent picture. And in terms of policy, well, I mean, I think from my perspective, policy says, well, it's nice to have AA people come to the country because they actually reduce crime rates if anything, so that's good. Uh, and the asylum wave, it seems to me that you should actually um, either hurry up and make the asylum application quickly, so that you either decide to let them stay or not, and actually just dragging it out doesn't help, or actually potentially let them work while they're here, while their claim is being assessed. Okay? So the big problem for this group is that they have very low labour market access, and even when they have labour market access, they don't seem to do very well. So you can work on both of those fronts. You can allow them to have labour market access as soon as they start claiming, it's not going to flood the labour market with lots of people. I mean, it's, uh, these are small groups of people. Uh, and actually give them some skills. Okay? So, you know, because in some sense, there's no harm to this country of giving them language skills, job training, that kind of thing. Because if, if in the end you grant them asylum, you want them to be skilled and fluent. So you might as well start as soon as they come. And if you end up not granting them asylum, you know, the costs of this are pretty small, it seems to me. And the benefits in terms of reducing crime seem to be worth taking. 